and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. So this week we're talking about uh, exciting news coming out of the 34th annual Space Symposium, including a speech from Vice President Mike Pence, uh, the current acting director. And we're also going to be talking about the confirmation of the new NASA director, which, as of recording, happened uh, earlier today. Also, Orbital ATK announced their new rocket, Omega, and we cover some of the interesting changes that are happening in the space industry, including Europa Clipper and the recent update on ILS, uh, the Russian launch company. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as Spex a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. So let's get right into Space Symposium 34. Um, it's happening April 16th to 19th, 2018 in Colorado Springs. All the top names in space are there giving presentations and uh, unveiling some big news. So uh, the first thing we'll talk about is Vice President Mike Pence's speech. Yeah, so uh, this was kind of a culmination of the second National Space Council uh, that we covered earlier this year. Obviously, uh, it was big news last year about reforming the National Space Council, trying to have a more overarching direction for how the United States does space and space policy. And the second meeting of the National Space Council was really focused on regulation and what can they streamline, what can they change to make it easier for NASA, but mainly commercial space companies to get into the industry and start be able to send payloads and have an impact. So can we pause for a second and talk about what, what the Space Council is and w- what it's made up of? So the National Space Council uh, is obviously it's headed by the vice president. However, it's actually a conglomeration of a lot of uh, members of the current administration. And the idea is to get everyone in the same room to talk about space. So you have people like the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, where space is a key part of their jobs, but also people like the Secretary of Commerce, of Transportation, uh, Director of National Intelligence. And the idea is to, uh, again, get everyone in the same room and with their specific areas of expertise, start talking about what they can do to help move space forward and what different space activities can do to make their lives easier. Obviously, uh, the U.S. space program benefits a ton of different sectors, whether that's communications, uh, even agriculture, weather forecasting, uh, disaster recovery, not just traditional military or uh, commercial communications uh, areas. So it's a very diverse group of people. This past February, uh, Mike Pence announced candidates to serve on the Space Council's Users Advisory Group which is composed of CEOs of companies like uh, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, and also uh, governors of different states and um, different foundations. Uh, So basically to get the industry and space community involved, not just the the government folk. Yeah, and the uh, reorganization of the Space Council uh, is something that we 
the United States hasn't had for a long time. It was originally founded in 1989 as about a big push to kind of revitalize the U.S. space program and come up with a plan. Uh, so we've talked about uh, George H.W. Bush's 90-day plan for Mars. Uh, that was a big push by the Space Council at the time, but it went away in 1993. So basically two decades without, more than two decades without having this body. And so now that it's reformed, they're trying to do an impact where they can immediately uh, make changes, right? Congress sets the budgets and the direction for NASA's big programs, but the administration handles the regulation that NASA and commercial companies can go through. So a big topic recently has been streamlining regulation. And so Mike Pence's speech was mainly talking about a kind of an update on that, about um, space traffic control, which is not something that you usually think of when you talk about space because rocket launches are these big events where they shut down the whole airspace and tons of people come in to watch. Uh, so you don't really think of traffic jams. But as launches increase, not only from uh, large established players, but also some small sat launchers want to launch dozens or hundreds of times a year, making sure that the licensing process is really, really fast, that if things change suddenly, whether it's a weather delay or a pad delay, one thing uh, they mentioned was if they go through the month-long licensing process for a launch of a specific pad, and then for whatever reason they want to shift it over to another pad, they have to do the entire licensing process again. And so if they can, you know, once you get a license of this rocket and this satellite are good to go to space, it really shouldn't matter that much where it's launching as long as it follows all the other re regulations to keep the people on the ground safe. Interesting fact. One of the reasons why NASA's next Mars lander, InSight, is launching from Vandenberg, California is simply because they had open pad space and the Cape was too crowded. So, fun fact there. And so the Space Symposium also had a lot of really uh, big names in space giving speeches in the beginning. Uh, Robert Lightfoot, who was, was the acting administrator for NASA, actually the longest serving acting administrator, he gave a speech, uh, basically his farewell speech because the Senate moved to uh, confirm his nomination of his successor, which we'll talk about. And he had a lot of interesting words to say about NASA, uh, primarily about uh, accepting risk. So uh, these tweets come from Jeff Faust, who is on location reporting, uh, and they cover a few of the key points of Lightfoot's speech. The first one being, we need to move from risk management to risk leadership. Risk management says the safest place to be is on the ground. Risk leadership says that that's the worst place to be. Uh, following up with, with, when we make mistakes, we usually fix it by adding something to the process. Can end up being a vicious cycle. Worry it becomes more about the process than the product. Also saying, when we sell a mission, we do so on the risk. Then we forget about the benefit and talk about the risk. Overfocus on one part of the risk trade will get you into trouble. Uh, and Jeff paraphrases um, a sentiment that Lightfoot had where he talks about uh, a specific case where a new approach would free up funding, but he was warned that the GAO, Government Accountability Office, would send an angry letter about it. And he says, I get a couple letters a week from them. 
So uh, the whole organization seems to be very risk adverse. And so I thought this was a really interesting insight from the longest serving act, acting NASA administrator who can now kind of speak freely now that his term has uh, come to an end. So Lightfoot's comments are actually really, really interesting because we've seen over the past five to 10 years, commercial space kind of explode, where it went from being a the NASA taking a risk by trusting companies like Orbital ATK and SpaceX to do some of the responsibilities NASA's been um, usually handling for the past 50, 60 years, to now those same companies are in many areas ap- rapidly outpacing NASA. And so as we see with SLS, with that program, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, with that program slowing, slowly getting to where it, it wants to be, uh, but development programs like Omega, which we'll get into, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy, which first flew this year, BFR, which we'll talk about in a future episode. Uh, the pace of commercial industry is incredibly fast compared to what NASA usually puts out. And so uh, I think a big part of that is that risk-averse nature. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, when you're talking about space and, and, you know, you have to accept some risk. You always have to tolerate some risk. And in, you know, relative terms, the space systems, launch systems have more risk because they're so complex and challenging. Yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting examples of this. Uh, Life has talked about uh, when NASA makes a mistake, they add something to the process. And a good example of that is the space shuttle, uh, which had two loss of crew incidents. And so when they're talking about building the successor of the space shuttle, Orion and now Dragon 2 and Starliner, their initial uh, goal was we wanted to be 100 times safer than the space shuttle. And I think that's a like a really interesting requirement from a process perspective of we had these two accidents, they were terrible tragedies, we don't want it ever happen again, let's make it 100 times safer. And then the actual engineers get that requirement and they have to build the spacecraft and they're like, well, we can't we don't think no matter how much money and how much time you give us, we can hit 100x. Maybe we can hit 50x or 25x. And so you've seen in the commercial crew development program, the loss of crew number slowly drop. And I think right now they're targeting one in 270, uh, which is about four or five times more than the one in 68, I believe the shuttle had. Right. And it's about being realistic. Like if you wanted to say, you know, this this uh, measuring tape has to be exactly one foot long to get the, that precision or to get that accuracy. The further you want to go, the more decimal places out you want to go, the more complex the system is to like prove that you're that accurate. Um, the more money it takes, the more time it takes. And it's kind of the same thing when you want to get your safety or when you want to make sure something is 100% going to happen the way you think it is. You know, it takes a lot more time and money and I think it's a lot easier to throw out, you know, oh, we want to be, we we don't want anybody to get hurt. We want to be super, super safe. Um, and let's do that by making super sure, you know, let's, let's add more process and more testing and more verifications. Yeah. And we've seen that with uh, 
James Webb Space Telescope that programs ballooned in scope, ballooned in schedule, and a lot of that has to do with Hubble, where they built this satellite that had so much promise, and then they launched it, and it had a fatal flaw in the mirror. And so you see JWST being double and triple and quadruple checked, and they haul that whole satellite across the country to all these different testing centers, making sure every component and every every single mirror element, so each hexagon of the mirror gets tested, they get combined into one whole mirror, that whole mirror gets tested. Right, and we're still seeing issues come up uh, in this testing and integration. Exactly. And there's no one size fits all. Yeah, the bottom line is when you have these absolute requirements um, where one party or one interested party says it has to do X, and another party says it has to do Y, and those parties don't talk, then it gets very hard to build an ideal system because some of those requirements might be pulling you in different directions. So, uh, moving on, uh, the corollary to uh, Lightfoot's going away talk is that we now have a new uh, nominated and confirmed NASA administrator, yeah, Jim Bridenstine. Yes, he got confirmed earlier this morning, April 19th, uh, with a vote of 50 to 49, with uh, one senator, John McCain, not present and not voting. Uh, and it was uh, a very interesting process for the people who are following along on the Twitter, uh, like live tweeting news. So uh, just some background here. Jim Bridenstine, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, he was actually nominated back in September um, and finally got a, a confirmed by the Senate on April 19th. This, some interesting things to note about um, Bridenstine as being uh, leading NASA is that he is a congressman. And it'll be the first time that NASA will be led by uh, just a plain politician. So uh, he hasn't been outside of the space industry. Um, Bridenstine has actually, he's actually fought for some legislation recently, uh, space policy, and uh, championed human space flight. Yeah, Bridenstine is, I believe, the most controversial NASA administrator that there's ever been. Uh, again, he's not part of NASA, so he wasn't an astronaut, he wasn't a research scientist or an engineer. Uh, he had a military background, but he's been in Congress, uh, and he served on the science committee uh, working on the appropriations that funded NASA. And I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, whether he can bring a breath of fresh air into NASA, where traditionally when you have these NASA administrators who have risen through the NASA bureaucracy and hierarchy to get to where they are, uh, you know, being in that position, it's really hard to affect change once you've gone through that system. And so if you bring someone new from the top, that is an opportunity to kind of affect change from the top down. Um, now, with an organization as large and as uh, spread out as NASA, uh, that's going to be very, very difficult. It's not like a new CEO of a company who can get everyone in the, the building in a room and do an inspiring speech. You have NASA centers across the entire country. So it's going to be a very interesting challenge to see if we see an attitude shift within NASA, but he does have the ability to change the general direction of NASA within reason of what Congress gives him. Two interesting things. One is how close the vote was in um, 
past uh, administrators that have come into NASA, it's been kind of a non-political thing. You know, uh, party lines haven't really mattered for uh, the confirmation. So now we, we see with this vote, this confirmation uh, being very close, 49 to 50, um, you know, it's it's kind of strange. Yeah, so the reason for that controversy hinges basically on one aspect in that back in 2013, Jim Bridenstine, as a congressman, uh, spoke on the congressional floor basically outright denying climate change, uh, specifically that global warming is not happening, and if it did happen, it stopped 10 years ago, and that NASA spends more money to an extreme ratio on climate change science, which by inference he doesn't think is necessary, rather than science for NOAA predicting the weather and creating better weather forecasts. And to be fair, since 2013, uh, he's again sponsored big uh, bills and reforms to uh, spend more money on science for NASA. His platform is very pro-NASA, very pro-science. Uh, Jim Bridenstine is notable in that he's a big supporter of commercial spaceflight, uh, and he helped secure funding for the Federal Aviation Administration's Office of Commercial Space Transportation. Um, so this is the office that deals with SpaceX, which deals with orbital ATK, uh, getting them permits, funding the programs that NASA gives that help develop the Falcon 9 and Dream Chaser and Cygnus. Um, so he's been kind of a strong ally of new space companies from the very beginning. And so it's going to be very interesting to see now that he is the head of NASA, does NASA open up in new ways to commercial uh, providers. The next big news item out of Space Symposium 34 is Orbital ATK's new rocket. Omega uh, is projected to launch in 2021. It is a three-stage rocket. The first two stages are solid engines and uh, it has a hydrolox upper stage. Yeah, so Omega is really, really interesting. Uh, it's been known as the NGL or Next Generation Launcher. Uh, so it's got a new name, and more importantly, the announcement was uh, the selection of its third stage engines. So Phil, as you mentioned, the first two stages are solid boosters, and the third stage is actually a Hydrolox upper stage powered by the RL10 engine. So that's actually an incredibly old engine. It originally flew on the original Atlas as part of the Centaur upper stage. It flew on the Saturn one. So this is mid-1960s era's technology. But it's been iterated on. And so it's actually a very incredibly efficient engine. It doesn't have that much thrust. Uh, we've talked in the past about how Centaur for Atlas V is a little underpowered. Um, but they're building the, or Aerojet Rocket 9 is building the RL-10C for orbital ATK. And so actually incorporating a fully 3D printed thrust chamber uh, for the engine. So that should be increase the ease of manufacturing for the engine and also drive down the cost. A big criticism of the RL-10 has been the cost of them uh, because they're based on such old technology The manufacturing is really, really difficult. So incorporating new manufacturing techniques should make it cheaper and uh, make the whole rocket perform better. Uh, so why why use solid rockets as the first and second stages? 
Uh, there was a really funny comment on the Orbital ATK subreddit where uh, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And it applies really well to Orbital ATK because they build large-scale solid rocket boosters. Uh, ATK was the company that built the space shuttle solid rocket boosters. They built all, most of the solid rocket boosters used for boost stages on satellites. And they're also building the SLS, uh, five-segment SRBs. And so uh, when your company's heritage in rocket motors is solids, uh, you're going to build a rocket that uses the solids to a, a big degree. And so uh, there's some shared heritage, but there's also some really cool innovations that they're trying to put into Omega. And for those that haven't seen this word printed out in text, Omega has a capital O and a capital A, uh, which mirrors the orbital ATK name. So that's a little joke they slid into the name there. But we have a whole blog post uh, diving into Omega and all the, the tech specs and the details of this announcement and how it fits in into the mid-2020s new launchers. Um, but one of the interesting things about Omega and their SRBs is that they're using carbon composite uh, casings rather than steel casings. Uh, and they're also using... Uh, they're also not having segments. So when we talk about the spatial SRBs, there were actually four segments, or they took four steel cylinders that had been cast with the solid fuel, and then they, uh, they merged those together into a single engine. And for those that don't know, when you see those giant uh, solid rocket boosters, you might think they burn from the bottom to the top. They actually burn through a hole or a channel that goes from top to bottom, and so it burns inside out. And so uh, with the Challenger disaster, the O-ring, the famous O-rings that failed, were part of the seals between the segments. And that O-ring failed, didn't seal properly, and caused the disaster. And so by switching to a contiguous casing for the full length, they can avoid um, that particular failure point. So they should be more, uh, a little bit safer. The carbon composite makes them uh, even more efficient uh, and has a higher thrust to weight ratio. So this whole rocket should get off the pad really, really quick compared to what we see with other launchers. So it should be a really exciting thing to see. Also, if you've ever seen videos of a space shuttle launch, that bright white smoke uh, is all from the solid rocket boosters because there's actually bits of particularized aluminum in the exhaust. So it makes really beautiful exhaust. It's really pretty uh, to, to watch um, rockets the Hydrolox rockets like Delta and the Space Shuttle uh, have clear exhaust. So it's not as exciting, uh, in my opinion, but uh, it's definitely a really cool rocket, uh, and it'll be exciting to see it launch ideally in 2021. And one big thing that Orbital ATK made absolutely clear in their press release and their announcement is that this rocket is real, it's happening, we're building it, uh, and they're trying to leverage as much of their existing workforce and factories and etc to make it happen um, so it really does seem like it's the new direction for orbital atk uh, and it's coming relatively soon if you want to learn more about omega uh, including how it fits into the context of other launchers and other 
um, things we expect to see in the early 2020s, you can check out TJ's excellent article, which includes all the numbers you care to look at and, and compare them uh, with links and references uh, to all the research he did. Next up, Ars Technica and Eric Berger put out a really interesting article on Europa Clipper and some of the politics that, go, that goes behind the scenes of that mission. And so uh, he got what appears to be relatively exclusive access to talk to some of the big people uh, behind making that mission happen. So, uh, so this article is titled, The Billion Dollar Question, How Does the Clipper Mission Get to Europa? Now, if you've been following Europa Clipper, you may know that uh, that mission has been mandated to fly on SLS. So it's one of the uh, scheduled missions for SLS once the qualification missions are done. And SLS has the ability to send that whole spacecraft on a direct trajectory to Europa. A smaller rocket like Atlas or Delta IV Heavy would have to use interplanet gravity assist. So go kind of the wrong direction from its uh, destination to pick up speed and borrow energy from the planets to then get all the way out to Europa. And so that means that once the mission's launched, you have to wait much, much longer. With SLS, it could do a direct shot. And uh, with SLS being delayed, uh, that puts the timeline for Europa Clipper into question. And a big question this article raises is that a follow-up mission, a Europa lander that might be able to explore the oceans of Europa, would have to be delayed as well. And so instead of having these this one-two punch in the mid to late 2020s where we get to learn so much more about Europa, that would have to be drawn out. Yeah, so the Europa Clipper is intended to scout out locations on Europa for a lander to land on. But in order to do that, it would have to arrive before the lander does. So if Clipper gets delayed, the lander gets pushed out too. Yeah, so this article is a really... A really interesting uh, kind of mini expose on one particular con congressman, John Culberson. So he's a Texas Republican, uh, and he has basically uh, been on a vendetta to push for more NASA planetary science. Uh, so it says that since 2004, he's been pushing to get more funding for NASA science to get the Europa Clipper mission funding to actually develop it and build the satellite. And uh, he talks about how the most recent NASA budget got them an extra $490 million uh, directed towards the Europa Clipper mission. So when we talk about those kinds sums of money, that means Europa Clipper is in progress. There's a large team of people working on it. Uh, this program, it's no longer in that pre-phase A or phase A where they're just discussing concepts. Um, final engineering designs are in the works. And uh, there's actually some really fun insights uh, we talked about on a prior mission, or we talked about on a prior episode, that SLS has a leaning tower, a leaning launch tower. And that tower is designed for SLS Block 1, the first mission, which could be launching 2019-2020. But then that tower has to be rebuilt and extended for Block 1B because it's got a completely new upper stage, so it's taller. And right now, or back when we covered it, NASA only had the budget and schedule to take 
build the, the first one, launch the first SLS, and then have to re-engineer the existing launch tower. And they estimated that it would take about 33 months, so almost three years from the first launch before the second launch, with the biggest lead item being that tower. And so Culberson actually uh, put, a, not really a writer, but wrote into a bill, uh, the appropriations bill, to give NASA the money and the directive to build the second SLS launch tower now, so that once the first SLS launches, that gap will be shortened. So the only changes that need to happen and the only time that needs to be waited for is to upgrade block one to block one B, the launch tower will be there and be ready. And that all ties in into his personal desire to see Europa Clipper launch as soon as possible, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how NASA is not just the scientists and engineers, it's the whole package. There's the whole ecosystem um, that it lives in. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting when we talk about NASA, Flux comes up, but it often comes up that Congress seems to meddle into their business and budget, uh, but they have, uh, in the article, a picture of Brian, uh, in the article, they have a picture of Culberson uh, at the uh, meeting with all of the heads of NASA. He's meeting with the current uh, chief scientist for NASA. And so there's actually a very tight partnership between the organization. Uh, and as you can see, there's a lot of congressmen across both sides that are pushing for more science and more cool missions for NASA. So the last thing we're going to talk about is the Russian launch provider International Launch Services is pulling out of the launch market. Yeah, so this is another uh, Ars Technica article, and it's titled... Russia appears to have surrendered to SpaceX in the global launch market. So ILS is the commercial arm of the Russian space agency. So Russia has all these legacy rockets. A lot of them came from ICBMs originally, uh, and they supply the native launch uh, capability for Russia. So Russia puts up its own communication satellites. They have their navigation system called GLONASS, spy satellites, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, they launch on Russian rockets, just like how the United States launches its government satellites on U.S. launch providers. However, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, for a variety of reasons, the pr launch prices for Russian rockets were incredibly cheap. And a lot of commercial satellite providers were interested in booking rides. And so you see ILS, the commercial arm, really expand and take up a big chunk of that market and uh, the main rocket for them is obviously Proton and we've talked about many issues Proton's had in the past of reliability mainly in the manufacturing and quality assurance uh, department rather than any critical design flaw uh, but all throughout the the 90s and early 2000s ILS was the part of the big two for commercial launch. ILS and Air and Space launched the majority of commercial satellites. However, in 2017, SpaceX launched 18 rockets with a majority of those being commercial customers and commercial satellites. Uh, where, do, 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 uh, the article, so let me rephrase that. So while in the past, ILS was a huge player in the commercial satellite market, as of this year, 
they might launch only about 10% of the commercial satellite launches, while SpaceX plans to launch about 50% of the commercial satellites in 2018. So it's been a dramatic shift uh, from once dominant industry leader to a relatively small segment of the market. And while ILS and other Russian rocket agencies are looking to compete in some areas, uh, they recently announced the Soyuz 5, which is an upgraded version of the venerable Soyuz rocket that's cheaper uh, and better able to compete with a SpaceX Falcon 9. We haven't seen Russia really uh, gung-ho and taking on SpaceX. You know, as we just talked about, Omega uh, is a new... Uh, as we just talked about, Omega is a brand new launcher designed to have new capabilities, new technology. We've talked about New Shepard, Vulcan on prior episodes. Big launch companies are investing in new technology. Russia and ILS haven't been so eager. And the article has uh, a very key quote uh, from Dmitry Rogozin, who you might remember from the uh, Russian trampoline comment back in 2014, where NASA or the United States and Russia were arguing over RD-180s, and Dmitry Rogozin threatened that since NASA uses Russian rockets to send astronauts to the space station, maybe they wouldn't send American astronauts anymore, and the American astronauts could use a trampoline instead. So there's been some fun back and forth uh, between the two countries regarding space. But uh, he's quoted as saying that the share of launch vehicles is as small as 4% of the overall market of space services. The 4% stake isn't worth the effort to try to elbow Musk and China aside. Payloads manufacturing is where good money can be made. And so I thought it was a really interesting quote because it seems like uh, Russia's content with giving up the launch market to SpaceX, but also Air and Space and other commercial providers, uh, and not trying to compete with uh, these newer companies and newer rockets. Yeah, it sounds like it's a business decision. Um, yeah, it's also interesting, though, that uh, when Dmitry goes and talks about that 4% of the market, and but ILS had about 50% of that 4%, that 4% is not insignificant. Uh, That's true. That's true. ILS had a market share of $2 billion of services every year. And yes, that wasn't pure profit, but that keeps the production lines open. That allows them to reinvest into new advancements and technologies. And so in a lot of ways, that 4% was subsidizing a lot of Russian uh, space launcher uh, developments for the military. Uh, which is the still Russia's big customer for space launch. And so now they're not going to have that, which means uh, Russia is going to have to find in their budget money to maintain that capability or else they're going to have to do cutbacks. Right. I mean, that said, the, the satellite manufacturing industry is upwards of $14 billion a year, too. So, Yeah. We've seen all the big companies talk about you know, the real money is in satellites, whether it's satellite services or building satellites. Uh, that's why SpaceX in particular is building Starlink because they can generate a lot more revenue and a lot more profit with satellites than they can do launches. I found it interesting that Rogozin mentioned um, the, the two entities he mentioned were Musk, Elon Musk and China. 
Did you find that interesting or am I reading too much into it? I think it's interesting, but it's something that I think for us, it's really easy to dismiss. China is launching a ton of rockets. Um, and until uh, what yesterday, Wednesday, uh, they were actually, China as an organization had launched more rockets than SpaceX had. Uh, now, granted, they have a much wider range of rocket families that they launch with, but China launches a ton of satellites for its own government interests. So uh, research, they can launch people. They have their own capsule. They've launched their own space stations. They also launch some commercial satellites uh, that don't have any U.S. technology because ITAR prevents that. So China is a huge launching... Uh, China is a huge... Uh, rocket launching country they're just mostly government so they're mostly secret and we only hear about them after they drop a rocket on someone's house which happens <laughs> more often than you would think yeah anyway that's all i had uh for this week is there anything else you wanted to talk about uh as we're recording this uh this is thursday april 19th ideally this is gonna go out uh tomorrow on friday uh, but this starts our uh, four, four episodes and three days recording sprint. Tomorrow we have a really fun interview with Copenhagen Suborbitals, uh, which is a all-volunteer open-source space program based out of uh, Europe. We also have an interview with another JPL scientist who works on Marco, which are the CubeSats accompanying InSight on their way to Mars. And on Saturday, we'll be talking about uh, second stage reuse using party balloons, as Elon Musk tweeted out, as well as BFR developments at the Port of LA. So it's a really exciting time. Uh, we're going to be doing a lot of st recording, very, very tight time frame, but we hope to get that out as soon as possible and that you guys really enjoy it and can, be, can stay informed. Uh, as well, you can guys can check out the blog. We're trying to post every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday with episodes going out on Friday. We cover space news, kind of deep dives into different kinds of technology and space missions. Um, so if you want more SpexCast, check out blog.spexcast.com three times a week. So with that, thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast uh, provider of choice and leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. You can reach out to us at RITSpecs on Twitter or by email at specscast at gmail.com. Thanks. <laughs>